Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show.
This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with chef and cookbook author Yotam Odalengi about the principles of cooking, including charring, browning, infusing, and aging, and the secrets to cooking Odalengi style, from asparagus and gochujang pancakes to sitar cacio e pepe. Well, look, this is my job to, uh, <laughs> to think of unusual combination. If it wouldn't be unusual, it wouldn't be Ottolenghi, right? Like I, you'd go, oh, I'll go and take uh, someone else's book. Also coming up, we prepare a Croatian-inspired beef stew with a rich paprika broth. And Bianca Bosker asks how many types of Cheerios are too many. But first, it's my interview with Reverend Heber Brown III. He's a pastor in Baltimore where he works to bring the black church and black farmers together. Reverend Brown, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, you founded the Black Church Food Security Network. What is that? It really is a connection of historically African-American congregations who are trying to leverage what we already have in our hands as it pertains to land and buildings and people and economic resources uh, to advance justice and security and sovereignty in the food system in our communities. So in many of our neighborhoods, we are challenged because we don't have access or agency with respect to our food environments. And uh, instead of waiting for, you know, grocery stores to come into the neighborhood or waiting for politicians to do something in the way of planning, we figure let's use what we have and, and start to make a difference for our own selves and our own families. Why do you think many neighborhoods don't have access to foods at a reasonable cost? Why are supermarkets not in those neighborhoods? You know, when the question is, why aren't there grocery stores here? You could also extend it and say, well, why aren't there quality schools here? Why isn't there quality housing right. here? One of the things that I've been really helped by in kind of understanding what's going on is by studying redlining in this country right. and studying how many of our cities were planned and, and set up in such a way that prioritized some areas, concentrated wealth in some areas, and then very literally created a red line right. where in these other neighborhoods, the uh, equity in the housing is down, the values are lower, the schools are more challenged. And while we don't talk a whole lot about redlining anymore, and especially as it relates to the food environment, it still is a reality. The ripple effect of it is still moving forward into our food system today. So I saw you in a video talking about power over your plate. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, so many times when we talk about food uh, and talk about historically marginalized communities, the starting point is, you know, y'all got to eat better. You got to eat better. Stop eating all that fast food and you won't have all these disproportionate health realities in your community. But it's like, how do you eat better <laughs> when fast food and corner stores are surrounding us on every side and grocery stores can pick up and leave from our neighborhoods, leaving the neighborhood really to figure things out on their own. And so I really do think having power over our plate is crucial when it comes to getting a handle on our health. It's crucial when it comes to creating economic opportunities and entrepreneurial ventures. It's crucial when it comes to transforming a neighborhood. So let's talk about your program. So exactly what happens? You, I think you started out using some of the land 
uh, owned by the church to actually grow produce, right? Yeah, yeah. So at the church that I pastor, Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore, I started noticing diet-related challenges in our congregation, a pattern of it. We have 1,500 square feet in our front yard. And I was like, well, listen, um, let's just start growing the nutrient-rich foods that we need with the little bit of land that we have. It was an amazing experience. We started growing 1,000 to 1,200 pounds of produce every year in our front yard. And other pastors started hearing about it and started calling. And we started to pull together this network like, okay, well, let's help these other churches too. And then let's help the churches to see the benefit of coming together in their growing practices and in, in their planning as well so that we can, in effect, create our own food system and not just have individual nice church gardens or community garden programs. So this has now been expanded. And you said something interesting at one point, which I didn't know. You said that there's a long unrecognized history between black churches and, and black farmers. Could you talk about that? Sure. So many of the black churches we have today in the country are where they are because a farmer gave them land to build. Hmm. Um, and so that it's such an intertwined legacy between farming and the African-American Christian community on that front. But also because, you know, we have annual days like homecoming where prior to the Great Migration or even during the Great Migration, homecoming was that time period where those who had left the South and moved North or West came back South to the family church, the family land, and helped with the harvest. So that history is there. And, and I just think as um, you know, more and more African-Americans left the South and then successive generations were born in cities, that type of wisdom and history has been lost uh, and people have disconnected from it. So starting with the land you had, the 1,500 square feet, how do you scale this so that you are able to feed tens of thousands of people over time? Is, is that your goal eventually to get this to a larger scale? So I, I think, you know, this work has really pushed me to think about scaling deep as opposed to scaling big. Mm -hmm. As I study the current corporate food system, and this year, like no other, has shown us how fragile that is, I don't think that replicating it by creating another big system, like one big mega food system run by black churches is the answer. But I do think that scaling deep within the relational currency of these churches is very powerful. If you have stewarded your relationships well with other, not just churches, but even mosques or synagogues in the city, you could essentially through leveraging the collective land, the collective commercial kitchens, the collective classrooms and other spaces, you could create this ecosystem that is propped up by the relationships in your own community and neighborhood. You know, it seems to me that this is about a lot more than food, right? It's about community. Mm -hmm. It's about people working together. Could you talk about that part of it? Because that seems so important to what you're doing. I think asset-based community development is one of the greatest things that any community can lead into and get involved with. Because if you start with, what do we already have? Where are our sales already erected? And then put some wind to those sales and we'll keep moving forward. So for the black church community, for instance, the largest land-owning body in black America is the collective black church. Hmm. There's nothing like land. 
and black churches have land, we have commercial kitchens. All these assets sit underutilized or completely unused Monday through Saturday. In, in your community, in your congregation, is there some consistency in how people think about food and its cultural context? Well, I think food is so much more than nutrients, right? It's, it's like the stories that are involved with food, the songs that are connected, the memories that are there. And the other thing here being in Baltimore, you know, this was one of the first stops for African-Americans who were leaving the South or run out of the South. And so you got a lot of folks who are from Virginia, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, and what that means is that the food cultures of those places have deep resonance here in the city of Baltimore. And our grandmothers and great-grandmothers, many of them are still around to tell those stories and build those bridges for us who live in a more urban environment. And so, yeah, food, food is like music, universal language that we sing in our community as well. Reverend Brown, it's been just uh, a great personal pleasure having you here on Milk Street. Thank you. It's been my joy. Thanks so much, Chris. That was Reverend Heber Brown III. He's the pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, also founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moulton, and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah's the author of Home Cooking 101. She's also the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. All right, well, so before we take a call, I've got a question for you, Chris. What is your worst culinary nightmare? And I don't mean while you're awake. I mean literally a nightmare, one that you have when you're sleeping. Showing up naked to cook for a king or something like that? (laughs) I've never had that one. But uh, it's like, you know, the school nightmare where you're not prepared for the test. I think it's probably having to cook some amazing meal and you just have no idea what you're doing. You can't find the tools and... It's just, you know, a complete disaster. Some version of that's probably my culinary nightmare. It's not cutting myself. It's just like making a complete fool of myself because, you know, I can't really make a puff pastry <laughs> in time to get it out the door. Oh, dear. No, anyway. that does sound like a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, okay. I've, I've had some of those in real life, too. So anyway. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. Quickly, let's on to a call. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hi, this is Lee Paul. I'm calling from Newton, Mass. How can we help you? Well, when I was in high school, I had a friend whose mother made the most unbelievable chocolate chip cookies. And I'm almost 72, and I've been trying for at least 30 years to replicate this <laughs> recipe. She made these large chocolate chip cookies that were hard as a rock and filled with chocolate <laughs> chips and walnuts. So you could nibble on them all day. I've made lots of hard as a rock chocolate chip cookies, but not <laughs> not on purpose. The problem with chocolate chip cookies is they're done when the outside edges are just getting crispy, but the inside is extremely soft and totally underbaked. Someone said to me a long time ago, there's baking time in the oven and there's baking time outside the oven. So there's continued baking. Most people don't take their cookies out until they're firm all the way through, including the center, which means they're overbaked. So I wonder, did you simply try baking them longer as a first step? I haven't tried that. There is one other thing. Are you creaming butter and sugar for your recipe or using melted butter? Creaming butter and sugar. Yeah, that's the other thing. So don't do that. Simply melt the butter. If I were you, I'd brown the butter 
because that'll add more flavor and mix that into okay. your sugar. Creaming aerates and you want a denser, harder cookie. Uh, so you would use white sugar too, not brown? Yeah, I think if you want crispiness, white sugar is going to give you a crispier product than a brown sugar. Okay, I don't really want crispy. I want hard. Well, that's <laughs> hard is about baking time. Just keep cooking them. Okay. All right, Sarah. I mean, they're going to get hard if you overbake well, them one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, I think you may be wanting to look for crispy, but dense crispy. So yeah, just crispy. white sugar. I agree with browning the butter. I think that'd be a yummy thing. Maybe use more egg whites than egg yolks. Mm-hmm. And also, here's hmm. another idea. Besides baking them longer, how about baking them at a lower temperature for longer? Ah. That way uh-huh. they'll dry out more. So you're thinking like 300 rather than 375 or... Yeah, or 325. Yeah. Okay. Don't cream the butter, bake it longer. And then if you still want more. When you more, say longer, are you saying, thinking like 20 minutes? Instead of 12 or 13? Yeah. I'd give it another 20% time. And when they come out, let them sit on the baking, the hot baking sheet. Don't put them on a cooling rack. Okay. That'll also help. And yeah. white sugar, not brown. Got it. Okay. okay. Let us know how that Thank goes, you. Lee. I will. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks, Lee. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. This is Dina from Sacramento, California. Hi, Dina. How can we help you today? I have a question about saffron. I recently made the Milk Street recipe pasta with zucchini, pancetta, and saffron for my family. Unfortunately, my husband felt the dish had a chlorine taste. I felt it had kind of a chemical or plastic taste, but my five-year-old said she didn't taste anything unusual. There were different opinions online about this, but I was hoping you might have the answers to why the saffron gave it such a strange flavor and what I can do to avoid this in the future. Well, have you had saffron before? I have had saffron before, and so has my husband. I've never cooked with it before. And you've liked it before? Yes, and we've never felt like it tasted like chemicals before. And did it color the dish yellow? Yeah, it definitely had a slightly different color than like just my regular pasta with maybe like a cream sauce. I mean, like a bit of a yellow tint, right? Mm-hmm, yes. And where did you get your saffron? I bought it from a pretty well-known national chain. Okay. Well, the reason I asked all those questions is some people I don't think really like saffron. Okay. It's got a sort of bitter, slightly astringent taste. I find it almost yes. tannic like tea. Does that sound like any of the things that you were experiencing or your husband? I would probably describe it more that way. My husband definitely said it had this essence of chlorine, and I don't think he would describe it like that at all. But my okay. five-year-old said, she again, she didn't taste anything unusual. I love you bringing your five-year-old. If you said my 21-year-old, but your five-year-old, she must, she must have a pretty sophisticated palate. She does, and she's a fan of Milk Street as well. We watch episodes and listen together. Well, the most important thing to me is that you said you've already had saffron in other dishes and liked it, so I'm now beginning to wonder about the source. You know, maybe it wasn't real saffron, so maybe it had its own unique taste from wherever it came from and was not the real deal. However, the fact that the dish did change colors somewhat is an indication, you know, that it turned yellow, that it might have been the real deal. Chris, do you have any thoughts? I do. It's one of two things. Either the one you just had is real saffron and everything else had was fake. Ah, good point. Or the opposite. Good point. 
Good point. But here's how to tell. You put it in water, cold water, and let it sit for 15 minutes. And the saffron threads should retain their red color, but the water should turn yellow. Yes. If you put it in and all of a sudden the water starts to color, that's probably because it's not saffron. It was dyed. Like corn silk, for mm. example, is used sometimes. It turns um, red. Okay. There's a ton of fake saffron out there because real saffron is obviously from the crocus and it's extremely expensive. So you were not having the same saffron all the time. Whatever you had this time was not what you had last time. I would think that... Saffron has kind of a Swedish smell. It does have a slightly bitter taste to it. It shouldn't taste like chlorine or be chemical. Right. So it makes me think that what you had was not true saffron. Yeah. I even went back to smell it, and it had a more chlorine smell to even. Yeah, eat. that's not. And so that was a little good. surprising. Yeah. Do you have any of the saffron left? I do. Okay. Well, immediately after this call, go put some of it in water, cold water, and let it sit 15 minutes. See what happens. Okay, I'll do that. And also, the ends of the saffron threads, one end should be thicker than the other. They're called trumpet ends. So that's another okay. thing to look for as well. Yeah. Okay. I will do the water test. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very scientific. All right. All right. Yes. All right. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call anytime. That's 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or simply email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Arlene from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. How are you? Good, thank you. How can we help you? Well, I decided to try making my own bagels. My first attempt resulted in a deflated flat bagel, which it tasted good, but it really wasn't what I was looking for. Most of the bagel dough recipes require this first rising followed by shaping and then a second rise followed by boiling the bagels before you bake them. And you boil them in a couple of quarts of water with some malted barley syrup added. So after further researching recipes, I saw a couple that included baking soda added to the boiling water. I tried that method and found myself with a huge mess after the water boiled right over. So I guess my question is, what would the baking soda do for the bagels? I know they have to kind of float in the water as you're boiling them for a minute or two. Baking soda will make a more alkaline solution. It's going to give you a more browned product once it's baked. It has nothing to do with the rise of the dough. Oh, it Um, doesn't? Okay. No. How much baking soda did you add to the water? is like a tablespoon, but it was only two to three quarts of water. And you have to add some malt barley syrup to that. I guess it kind of gives it Uh, this coating. So it wasn't a huge pot, but it just boiled right over. And I didn't know if it was really an essential thing that I needed to do. Well, let's go back. I wonder if the malt barley syrup reacted with the baking soda. That's very possible. The baking soda you can leave out. I think the problem is if you do overproof you're going to end up with less of a rise. So you may have just overproofed a little bit before you put them in the water before you bake them. So proof them a little less before they go in the water. And my guess is that'll solve that problem, Sarah? Yeah, I would agree. I think it's a rising problem. How long did they have you proof the bagels? The original recipe said an hour, and I think that was probably much too long. 
but it seems like if you don't proof them enough, they won't float. So I guess the key is like trying to get the right amount of time. Can I ask what kind of flower you're using here? I use the King Arthur. That should be fine. I'm just glad the baking soda isn't something essential, and it's no. more trying to get the right yeah. amount of proofing. One thing I'd note, though, is proofing times are just totally useless because it depends on your kitchen and the temperature of the ingredients, and the, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't follow the whatever the recipe said. Usually they give you some visual clues. Did they tell you what they're supposed to look like when they're properly proofed? Yeah, usually they say, and let it rise for X amount of minutes or until. If there's a visual clue, I would go for that. What you might want to do is go back to King Arthur Flour, check out what their recipe says. Hopefully it has an or until, but they also have a baker's hotline. And you could reach out to them directly, ask them about this, about the or until. What should it look like? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think the part about the temperature in your kitchen does have a lot to do with it. Yeah, Yeah, that makes a huge difference. We've done a lot of tests with like pizza dough and other things. And the ambient temperatures can change your proofing time 100%. Right. And I would call King Arthur. Sarah's right. They're very, very helpful. Well, that's a great idea. Well, thank you so much for your help. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with cookbook author Yotam Odalengi. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, 
like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Yotam Odolenghi. His latest book is Odolenghi Flavor, a Cookbook. Yo, Tom, welcome back to Milk Street. Oh, uh, thank you, Chris. So let's, let's go back to your beginnings. I, I'd like to go through, uh, you know, your childhood and growing up just to understand uh, what was going on in the kitchens uh, at that time, how you cooked, how other people cooked, just to get a sense of how you got to where you are. So you grew up in Jerusalem in the 70s. Um, what, what was that like? That was a tough time in Israel with the wars and everything else. Were you aware of what was going on at the time? I mean, I, I, I think childhood in general, if you're not suffering terribly from the effects of what's going on around you, you can. And I, I was quite oblivious to what was happening around me. And, and I had a good childhood. Jerusalem was a place that has even more now quite a lot of tension in it. But actually, the 70s and the early 80s, which I would consider my childhood, was a relatively quiet time in terms of the relationships between Jews and Palestinians, which are the kind of the, the heart of the conflict. And uh, up until the first Palestinian intifada or uprising from 1967 until the 80s, it was nice and peaceful and people were living more or less OK together. And uh, it only later it started to ignite and became more troublesome. So I remember really quite seminal experiences in my childhood would include going from West Jerusalem, which is the Jewish part where I was growing up, to East Jerusalem, to the old city, which was just a kind of a, an incredible place to wander 
if you are like me, a hungry and uh, eager kid. So, you know, wonderful bakeries with pita breads and bagels and the spice stores were very evocative with the za'atar and the cumin piles and the sumac piles and then the fruit and vegetable markets. Everything was very intensely flavored and colorful. So this was my experiences in Jerusalem. But I also had my parents who are of European descent. My father's family is from Italy, so we had a lot of really good Italian food at home as well. And my mother cooked kind of internationally. So in terms of the food that I had growing up, I was very lucky. I had the best of all worlds. Let's talk about your dad in his later years. You were cooking him Jerusalem artichoke soup, and he woke up and talked to, I guess, uh, a niece and explaining how to make the soup. And you go on to say, like, my father, the gratification I got out of cooking food could only be surpassed by talking about it. So, uh, you know, he <laughs> smells the soup and all of a sudden kind of wakes up and, and starts explaining the recipe, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is a moment I've written about um, recently because my father passed away not even a year ago. And his his mental capacities were deteriorating quite quickly towards the end of his life. So in the last few weeks, I spent most of my time in, in, in Israel alongside him with the rest of my family. And what you refer to is this moment where my father, just like myself, loved cooking and loved talking about food. And um, we were trying to kind of, as, as much as possible, get him to get excited about things in general because he was very difficult. He was really struggling. And I said, I'll make a Jerusalem artichoke soup. And my niece said to him, look, your time is making Jerusalem artichoke soup. And he started telling her what I should be doing. And I got, <laughs> I carried on doing it, a little bit of what he was saying and a little bit of what I was saying. And in the end, I let him try it. And I, I could tell that he was not quite sure that I followed the instructions. He made this uh, voice of slight disapproval. <laughs> and I love that. I think, you know, he was really suffering from pain and inability to concentrate and all those things. But he could still cast judgment over the quality of my soup. And for me, that was just such a wonderful thing, you know. It's just that vitality that food brings with it is, is greater than anything else. So you end up, I didn't know this, you were the head pastry chef. I, I know you've done a, a fabulous dessert book on sweets, but I, I didn't realize that was really your training, head pastry chef at uh, Baker and Spice. So did you gravitate towards baking naturally or the, that was the job that was open? So you, so that's what you did. <laughs> the latter. So I, when I started, I... I aimed very high, which was a total mistake. But anyway, I went to a Michelin star restaurant called The Capital here in um, in London. The the chef said, "Oh, you know, I, the pastry chef needs needs a bit of help, and uh, and why don't you go and work with her?" And I really enjoyed it because it felt like something contained, like something I could actually learn quite easily. And I think for many people in kitchens that start slightly later, as I did. It's a kind of an acceptable solution or a way into the kitchen, starting with pastry where you work with recipes and there's very clear ways of doing it. And that's how I ended up being a pastry chef. But I actually really loved it. I loved doing the pastry work. Years ago, I walked into one of your takeout shops, I think in Mayfair. And the first thing that struck me, besides being very happy to be there, was the colors. I mean, it's just... This amazing platters of amazing looking food and all the different 
smells and aromas and you know, it was clearly brilliantly considered retail environment. You know, you walk in and you eat with your eyes. To what extent do you think your cooking has been influenced by attracting foot traffic into a store? Because it, it's uh, like marquee food in terms of the visual presentation. It's a really good question because I often use this as an example. People ask me, you know, how did you develop your style? Uh, of presentation cooking and I often say I've got the instincts of a market stall holder because everything started from putting food on display in our shops so our first shop maybe the one you came to was in Notting Hill in West London and Sammy Tamimi who's one of the partners and I were there to almost subconsciously recreate the Jerusalem souk I don't think we knew that was what we were doing but it definitely affected the way we presented the food. You know, the uh, this, these kind of big gestures, the big platters and everything looking spectacular and rich and interesting. And I think that that still informs the way I present the food and the way the books look. It's very much about that kind of sense of boldness and abundancy, contrasts, which is visual, but actually it also gives you a sense of what the flavors are. So... A contrast of color immediately translates into a contrast of flavor, and, and that contrasting experience is something that I'm always looking for. I hate a boring meal, even if the, the level of cooking is exquisite. I like to be surprised. You know, I like something unusual happening. So a smooth soup with nothing in it is kind of my idea of hell because nothing happens. You know, you just eat that soup. The flavors could be amazing, but, you know, you forget you're eating after a minute. It's like background music. Let's move on to your book, Flavor. Uh, You talk about 20 ingredients. I think there's actually a chapter called that. And so just just give us a half dozen of those ingredients you think people really should keep on hand. Okay, so Flavor is a book that I've co-written with Easter Belfridge, who is an incredible woman. And I love my books to be collaborations. And in her background, she's got Italy, Mexico, and Brazil. So she grew up in Italy, and she spent time in Brazil and Mexico, where she has family. So it's way more chilies than I normally have in my food, although I love chilies. I've always cooked with chilies, Syrian chilies, dried chilies, and and Turkish dried chilies, like Aleppo and Urfa. But there's also ancho chili and chipotle and cascabel chili, all really, really incredible Mexican chilies that I think... You know, I don't, in America, they're more familiar than they are here in England. But even in America, some people say, you know, I don't like heat. And it's not necessarily about the heat. Often it's about the undertones. So an ancho brings a warmth and sweetness to the table. And there's even a dessert, a flan here in this book, which uses that chili. And it's just a wonderful way to enrich your experience, to create layers of flavor, which is what this book is all about. Other ingredients that I recommend here is from the chili department, the gochujang, the Korean chili paste, Mm -hmm. which many people have probably come across super useful for umami and, you know, interesting flavors. There is a recipe here for... Uh, like a pancake batter with gochujang that I pour over asparagus. So it's an asparagus and gochujang pancake. Really simply delicious and not that difficult to make. Can I just stop you for a second? This is so your time. Oh, yeah, it's the old asparagus gochujang pancake recipe. (laughs) I mean, geez, you know, right? (laughs) Um, 
yes, well, look, this is my job to, uh, <laughs> my job is to think of unusual combination. And if it wouldn't be unusual, it wouldn't be Ottolenghi, right? Like I, you'd go, yes. oh, I'll go and take uh, someone else's book, which is absolutely fine too. But yeah, we, we push the boundaries here in, in my test kitchen. And there's another recipe that I absolutely love and I'd love everybody to try. And that's the Zatar Cacio e Pepe recipe. Mm. So um, Cacio e Pepe is probably one of the most loved of the Italian cheese pasta sauces. And it's not that complicated to make, but it's just you need to get it right, the level of starch. So you want to get your butter, your cheese emulsifying in a particular way. And we add Zatar to the process, which is the, um, you know, the Middle Eastern spice or herb, dried herb mix. And it's just, when, when Easter said to me, I said to her, Easter, you know, we need more Zatar in this book because it's becoming too Asian and Mexican and I, we need to keep ours close to the roots in a certain way. And she said, let's do that. And I thought like, oh, you know, they're going to say that it's, it's, uh, it's the worst kind of fusion. And she said, oh, let me try it and see what comes out of it. And I said, okay. And then when she made it, it just made so much sense. You know how we add hard herbs like sage or marjoram or, or, or oregano to butter. And it's one of the basic things in Italian cooking. So it's the same concept. This is really interesting to me. I, I, love, I love cooking methods. You know, I, I think in Sichuan there are 57 different cooking methods. But you talk about in flavor, you've honed in on four, which I, th I think is fascinating. Charring, browning, infusing, and aging. Because I, I think that's such a interesting combination. Could you just talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, so we divided the book into four sections, and one of the sections is the process section. And like you said, it has four things that happen during the cooking process. So one of them is charring, the second is browning, the third is infusing, and the fourth is aging. And those categories came through the actual recipe, so we didn't have those ideas in our heads. What we did is we looked at the recipe Easter and I, and we just said, what's actually going on here? What makes it special? And we found that the smokiness that comes out of the charring could really be affected. And everyone who's cooked my million and one recipes for burnt eggplant would know that charring is right. so essential to give a particular set of flavor. The smokiness that comes through charring a, a vegetable it makes it really unusual. So that was definitely going to be one of the heading. The other one is browning. And in that section, we've got our celery root which is a wonderful example of browning because you take something which is quite high in water content and fairly bland and you cook it for three hours and you get that concentration of flavor and sweetening of the flesh. The third thing which is really cool is what happens when you infuse and we use infusion a lot because often what Easter and I do we start a recipe by taking some aromatics and frying them lightly in an oil those give the dish its flavor profile. So it could be something like ginger, garlic, and a star anise, or some dried chili and lime skin and some curry leaves. Mm. And what happens is that that oil will then be used throughout the cooking, maybe in a couple of stages. First, to cook your basics, you know, your garlic, your onion, and later as a finishing oil or as something that is used for a little salsa. So these things are incredibly useful. Iceberg wedges with smoky eggplant cream. That really stopped me in a good way. <laughs> it was sort of like the classic American iceberg wedge you know, with blue cheese dressing. 
but you've turned that around. Could you just talk about that? Because that really intrigued me. Yeah. You know, it's funny that we, so iceberg is not something I'm naturally attracted to. It's a very <laughs> bland kind of leaf. But sometimes that crunchiness is really useful when you want to layer things over it, you know, so that it really does have, have almost like zero presence in its own right, but it's super crunchy. So that is kind of like the ultimate Ottolenghi platter. So the, the fresh uh, iceberg leaves almost like out of the fridge when they're super crunchy are the base for a runny baba ganoush kind of thing. So it's a burnt eggplant sauce. Uh, then I've got some radishes there, avocado and crispy nuts. But that dish is all about texture. It's so crunchy. But obviously that creaminess that comes out of the avocado and the um, eggplant dressing, it gives it a real interesting creamy texture as well. Uh, on a more personal note, I didn't realize this. You came down with COVID. Uh, I, you know, I just have to ask, what was that like? Uh, I was pretty miserable for quite a long time. I was in bed for about three weeks, feeling very bad. It was early in March, so I didn't really know that the fact that I couldn't taste or smell anything had anything to do with COVID because it wasn't one of the more talked about symptoms at, right at the start. But later I realized that that's what it was. I, I completely lost my taste buds, which was kind of fine because I wasn't really bothered about food at that time. But I was very happy to, to get those back uh, after <laughs> I, I got well again. Yo, Tom, uh, as always, a pleasure. You're a scholar and a gentleman and a pretty good cook. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure to talk to you. That was chef and author Yotam Odolenghi. His latest book is Odolenghi Flavor, a cookbook. So what happens when your name actually becomes a thing? For example, I was recently told that Estonia has Odolenghi-style cafes. Well, that made me think of other famous people whose names live on. Jeffersonian democracy and Darwinism. A slip can be Freudian, and if you're uptight, perhaps you are Victorian. Products are often named after their inventors. The Graham Cracker, thanks to Sylvester Graham. The saxophone by Adolf Sax. And the Ferris wheel, of course, was invented by George Ferris of Pittsburgh. And of course, one day you just might be saved by the Heimlich maneuver. So all in all, I would say that Yotam is in very good company. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Slavonian-style shepherd stew. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you go all the way to Croatia to eat <laughs> beef stew. Uh, but can we start with Croatia? Doesn't it have a really, really interesting and varied cultural history? It, well, it, it is a history of conflict is what it is. You know, it has been invaded so many times. I mean, you find yourself wondering, is this Austrian? Is it Hungarian? Is it Turkish? Is it Arab? In fact, the, the stew that we're talking about today is from a culturally distinct region in the eastern wedge of the country, Slavonia. But you see all these other influences that suffuse the cuisine across the country. And one of them that, again, plays out in today's stew is the use of paprika. I mean, copious amounts of paprika. Now, paprika, do you mean like pimenton, like a smoked paprika, or is this just a sweet or hot paprika? This is just the sweet paprika, um, but it's used in quantities that I found delicious, yet breathtaking. I mean, quarter cup or more at a time. It was, it was really quite surprising. And of course, you're getting 
a ton of color and flavor from that ingredient, and it really, really transforms the food. The, the other thing that really impressed me about this stew is the way they use root vegetables. You know, we think of, you know, the carrots, for example, in a beef stew. You chop them up into chunks, you throw them in, you simmer them until they're tender. They actually grate both carrots and parsnips, and they mix those grated root vegetables in early in the cooking process. And over the course of a couple of hours of simmering, a lot of those gratings break down and melt into the stew, giving it this kind of sweet, naturally rich body that balances so well with the paprika and the savoriness of the beef. And the result is really, it's a a lovely balance of that sweet and savory and rich. I was quite, quite pleased with this. Now, this dish is sometimes served with dumplings cooked in the stew. Is that right? Yes. You know, and I had it both ways many times. There didn't seem to be a consensus on that. And there was nothing, you know, truly remarkable about the dumplings, although I'm never one to turn down a, a delicious dumpling in a, in a brothy beef stew like this. <laughs> and this also, like traditional stews, has red wine, et cetera, the, the usual suspects? Yes. Yep. And, you know, you cook some onions in some oil, you add your carrots and your parsnips, you brown them a little bit, you brown some tomato paste, get that kind of richness, and then in comes the paprika, and then they throw in some red wine and some water for the broth, and eventually the meat. Now, you know, traditional versions can be made with lamb or beef or pork or even wild game. We found that beef chuck roast here in the U.S. did the best job. It had the most marbling to produce a nice rich broth. But then you just walk away for two hours, and and it is phenomenal. Jam, thank you. So a Slavonian-style shepherd stew uses grated carrots and parsnips, which I really like, almost half a cup of paprika, <laughs> which, which you know, in your travels and mine, we see that all the time, right? We see yes. a quarter cup, a half cup, not a tablespoon. Exactly. Nothing and then, subtle here. Nothing subtle. And then finish it off with some dumplings. What's not to like? Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Slavonian-style shepherd stew at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Bianca Bosker gives us a history lesson on Cheerios. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. 
Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Mary Vantrick Boris, calling from Mannheim, Ontario, Canada, and here's my tip. I make my own tomato sauce and can enough to use throughout the winter. For over 40 years, I have added one ingredient when preparing the sauce for a recipe that mellows the acidity or the sharpness the tomatoes can have, and it adds to the overall savoriness. That ingredient is honey. I usually add a couple of tablespoons near the end of the preparation and I adjust for taste just like I would for any seasoning. I'm often asked what makes the tomato sauce so palatable and I believe it is the added honey. Try it and enjoy. If you'd like to share your own tip or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Bianca Bosker. Bianca, how are you? Great. How are you, Chris? What crazy things have you been up to uh, lately? Well, I've been fixated on Cheerios. (laughs) I don't want to be dramatic, but I had a bit of an existential crisis at the supermarket the other day. Um, I had this vertigo-inducing sense of just being surrounded by Cheerios. I mean, fruity Cheerios, frosted Cheerios, chocolate Cheerios, chocolate peanut butter Cheerios, peach, blueberry. Hmm. And it not only kind of paralyzed me with indecision, but made me wonder, how did we get to have so many Cheerios? Yeah, it's true. Cheerios have more iterations than any other cereal, even uh, like cornflakes. Cornflakes, you barely find cornflakes these days. Yeah, One thing I find interesting is, you know, that cereal has, I think, become so ubiquitous that it sort of feels like it was around forever. But 
modern-day cereal seems to have evolved around the mid to late 1800s. But even breakfast as a meal is a relatively recent invention, um, one that seems to have emerged around the time of the Industrial Revolution when people started moving to cities and keeping to a stricter schedule and routine. But cereal, in some ways, was the original clean-eating wellness fad. Right. I mean... It was the Kellogg brothers, right, who came up with it? Well, there's some debate. I mean, there was also granola that came out of sanatoriums. Mm -hmm. I think they called it granola in the early days. And like some health foods, it was not delicious. One critic referred to it as wheat rocks. <laughs> um, but Cheerios, you know, they came, well, they are younger than cornflakes. They're older than Raisin Bran, but they actually debuted in 1941 as Cheery Oats and were sort <laughs> of revolutionary for their time. I mean, they marketed themselves as this ready-to-eat, no-cook oatmeal. I didn't know they, they were sold as no-cook oatmeal. That's brilliant. Right? Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. But for a long time, there was just that one Cheerios, which General Mills refers to as the Yellow Box Cheerios. And in 1979, the cereal inventors at General Mills came up with an idea so bold that it's basically changed breakfast ever since. They just put more sugar on it, or they, they they put it with a cartoon character? Close, on both fronts, actually. So three words, honey, nut, oh, Cheerios. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so the original recipe has changed a bit, but honey nut Cheerios have obviously stuck around, so much so that in 2009 they actually overtook the yellow box Cheerios to be the most popular breakfast cereal in the country. But it didn't stop there. We have now gotten to this place where there are around 20 different Cheerio flavors currently available. And that started really in the early 2000s. And they've basically released a new Cheerio spinoff ever since. Well, my answer would be that General Mills wants as much shelf space as possible in the supermarket. And that's a way of getting more linear feet of shelves. I think that's part of the answer. But... I don't know if you have realized this, Chris, but we are living in the age of the cereal mega brand. And, you know, as you might imagine, it is much riskier and more expensive to launch a new cereal. In 2016, General Mills came out with what was the first new cereal line in 15 years called Tiny Toasts. And by a lot of counts, uh, about half of all cereals apparently fail before their fifth birthday. And if you look at the history I mean, the cereal graveyard is full of doomed breakfasts. You've got wackies, freakies, sprinkle spangles, crunchy stars, and <laughs> I'm sad to report, tiny toasts. Uh, tiny toasts, less than a year after its launch, got folded into the cinnamon toast crunch line. Well, I, you know, I talked to someone in the supermarket business last year. They said that 83% of all supermarket products don't make it to their first anniversary. So it's a brutal, brutal landscape. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, instead of trying to gamble on a, a new product, they basically release what are called flankers. Like Honey Nut Cheerios is apparently called not a cereal, but a flanker, <laughs> which um, is a product that is designed to appeal to new mouths without cannibalizing the right. existing product. And it just gives this impression, at least to me, that we're living in this world of endless cereal remakes. So I just wonder if it's a little bit like kids, right? My son has watched Monsters, Inc. 20 times and is still going strong. 
they all want the same book. They want the same movie, Marvel Comics, you know, remakes and remakes. Um, I wonder whether that's true in the serial business, too. People have an almost limitless appetite for the same thing with slight variations. What's unfortunate is sort of what we've been calling food innovation is really just food iteration. And so, Chris, I ask you, where <laughs> is the revolution in breakfast? Bianca, are, is your definition of adventure in the morning a new breakfast cereal? <laughs> well, I am ashamed to say it, but I did eventually get over my uh, indecision. And my gosh, the pumpkin spice Cheerios are embarrassingly delicious. Bianca, oh. <laughs> what is this, true confessions? Well, I, I will say that we buy Cheerios, except the natural version in our household. You know, Cheerios was a good idea, but I'll let you have the pumpkin spice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> My pleasure. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. You know, American industry knows how to milk a good thing. Cheerios were hit, and so endless flavor variations ensued. And this approach, of course, also works with cars. The iconic 1965 Mustang was followed by the GT Fastback, the Shelby GT350, the Boss 302, and of course, the Cobra. And that's the essence of consumerism. You buy something you like, and then we'll sell you more with a twist. Yet the original Mustang is still the most sought after model. We don't stick with our choices because we simply have too many choices. But don't you wish you still had that 65 Mustang in your garage? Well, I do. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, just go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Executive producer, Tanya Ott. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. <laughs>